Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Horse Geeks podcast, where we look at horses and riding from the inside out. I'm Kirsten Nelson, professional horse trainer, and with me today for the first time is Dr. Anne-Marie Hancock, DVM and equine osteopath, whose practice is True North Equine in Marshall, Virginia. And I watched a lecture you did on the horse's nervous system. So that's sort of the topic for today is talking about this, I think the new buzzword I keep hearing is polyvagal. And so I want to know more technically what that means. And I did get to watch a YouTube video on you giving a lecture with some visual elements, which we won't have today in the podcast, but that was really helpful to look at the different segments of the nervous system. So oh, yeah. I, well, if anybody wants access to that video, um, they can contact us afterwards if somebody's really interested and we can um, send it to them. Oh, great. Okay. And so I will put all your contact information in the show notes and in the information box below on YouTube. So let's like the nervous system fascinates me. And for years, I, I sort of just call it the learning frame of mind in a horse that if the horse is not dominant in a, the parasympathetic nervous system, literally can't learn. So the learning frame of mind in the way I train basically equates to a parasympathetic state. And so I want to go from your perspective, maybe talk about the nervous system, the polyvagal part of it, and your take on what you see as a veterinarian, why the nervous system has become so important to you too. Absolutely. Um, so I think the interesting part is, is that we've changed from looking at the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems as being an on-off. And now we're talking about it as that there are multiple gradients of that and that it's not just, you know, one or the other. And there's this third section of the parasympathetic system that we need to think of that has to do with um, where animals, mammals go when they have just had too much. You know, it's, it's kind of that response that we call the freeze response, which would be like when the rabbit gets caught, this is where it goes, is into this um, third nervous system section where they just sort of shut down and kind of numb the outside of the body and they pull blood away from the brain and they're just kind of there, but not really present. And so I think by dividing it into three sections now, we've really um, explained how the body functions and copes better. So like you were saying, there's this very healthy parasympathetic system that we call the um, ventral vagal system. So the parasympathetic is innervated by the vagus nerve. Um, so that's why it's called ventral vagal. And that's where you want to be. So um, when a mammalian system is in ventral vagal, everything is able to heal. So the tissues are able to heal. Your hormones are working correctly. You know, you're getting a lot of blood flow and, you know, good sugars to the brain, as well as to the gut, to the periphery, like everything's kind of in balance and the body is sort of functioning on this nice you know, even keel, um, like, like you're talking about from a training standpoint, they can think so they can see what you're asking and think about it and give a response. And it's a measured response, right? Um, so what happens with fight or flight or sympathetic is that sympathetic is really movement in itself, right? So you, if you're going to be training, and you're going to be moving, there's kind of this blend of sympathetic and parasympathetic when you're actually doing activity and right. that's healthy and normal. So it's okay to have sympathetic. It's just that when it becomes overwhelming, that's when we start to think about it as fight or flight. You right. know, so in that um, fight or flight system, then um, the blood is going to the muscles and to the heart and you're taking blood away from the gut away from all of your endocrine system, like your hormones, you're taking it away from the brain um, and you're not healing, you're breaking down tissue to have energy, right? To run. Um, so it's not a very healthy stage to stay in if you wanna heal, because all you're doing is breaking things down. So I think, you know, from a, a standpoint of a veterinarian, we need to think of it as 
if the horses are in that state and they stay there, they're not coming back to parasympathetic, you know, so they're getting worked and they're really hyped and then they go back in their stall and they wheel around the stall for 23 hours and then they go back out and they ride again. You know, they're staying in that fight or flight zone. They're never going to heal, right? So right. if they have a tissue injury, it's going to be much, much harder to get it to heal, you know, or they're much more likely to have um, stomach ulcers because they might be creating a problem, but then they have no way to get rid of the problem, you know, to fix the ulcer once they get it, you know? So I think, um, you know, a lot of the problems that we see in modern medicine have to do with this sympathetic state being um, present too much of the time. So the horses can't come back to normal. So I have um, a question for you mm -hmm. quickly is yeah. like, I've talked about the nervous systems, it, not, I, I'm really anxious to hear about the poly, um, polyvagal, but like the sympathetic, parasympathetic operating more like hot and cold water, that there can be degrees. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, there's a really great um, graph. I think it's from Steve Porges and the polyvagal people um, that are the ones that originated the theory. So it's mm -hmm. the polyvagal theory actually came out of psychology and sociology. And all of us osteopaths are like, oh my gosh, this is the theory. This makes so much sense from a nervous system and, you know, physical standpoint. But um, he has this amazing picture where he kind of shows like mixes of, you know, here's ventral vagal plus sympathetic, here's dorsal vagal plus sympathetic, here's dorsal vagal plus ventral vagal, you know, all kinds of different combinations of the two that are part of normal reaction. So like- right. Um, intimacy is actually dorsal vagal and ventral vagal together, you know, um, so there are reasons to use all three portions of the vagals, you know, the autonomic system and balance them out and they can be healthy. And so it's normal to kind of fluctuate between them. It's just that if there is no fluctuation, especially if they're staying in a state that's either the sympathetic or our third condition, the dorsal vagal, that it's unhealthy. Got it. So that dorsal vagal is the third segment that we sort of just started talking about. That's um, kind of new as far as to how people think about the autonomic nervous system. And so what it is, is it's, um, it's more of a, like we think of it as the most primordial, you know, the oldest portion of this whole system that's been around forever. Um, and it's a coping mechanism. So it's what's supposed to happen when the body can't deal anymore. Um, so when it, a person or an animal is overstressed and they're just done, this is where they go. Um, and so you kind of shut down that sympathetic system, right? So you're not moving as much anymore. It's not so active. Um, and it sort of numbs the brain. Like I said, you're taking away the blood flow, you know, and the nutrients to the brain. Um, and you're not really even digesting well anymore. It's just sort of pooling fluids into the viscera. Nothing is healing, you know, so it's just a state of being and they're kind of checked out. And I think that um, it's really hard to work with, um, to interact correctly with an animal or a person that's in shutdown, you know, so they're, they're functioning, but they're not really connected. Um, and so I think that's what makes it so hard. Um, oftentimes when people first get into riding, you know, they go to um, a schooling barn and they're taking lessons on some, you know, somebody's 20 year old school horse that plods along and you can kick it as much as you want and it doesn't go anywhere. And, it, you know, that kind of thing, that is a horse in shutdown. You know, so we think of these horses a lot of times as being very gentle and sweet and tolerant, but they're really just not there. They're just mm. checked out. And I think that what we need to think about is, you know, from a training standpoint, that's fine until they decide to wake up because when they wake up, they're going to be a lot, um, yes. you know, and you have to expect that and be okay with it. Like yeah. to get them back to healthy, there's going to be a period of time where they're going to be overly expressive and that's good. And so we want that phase, you know, you can't get so angry when they start to act up because that's them coming out of their shell. So I think that's important to know from a training standpoint. And then I think um, from a medical standpoint, we really need to get these horses out of that shell so they can heal. So like a lot of your metabolic cases, you know, they're in chronic inflammation. 
Um, they have fat pads, everything else. I think those horses have a lot of symptoms that could be associated with being in shutdown. So we need to kind of help them connect as part of how we help that nervous system work. And get Interesting. Yeah. So I, I think it is kind of a cool way to look at the world where you can kind of, you know, you can affect the nervous system, which can affect the whole body and the health and the brain and everything. So um, I also borrowed a lot from psychological models for horse training. And would you say like talking about, especially the dorsal vagal um, segment of the nervous system, that that's more related to like freezing and fawning behavior versus mm -hmm. the fight and flight behavior of what we considered the other part of the sympathetic nervous system. Yes, definitely. Yeah, because fight and flight are going to be movement either towards or away from the fear trigger, where freezing is no movement until it's explosive movement. And then fawning, I categorize as movement in order to placate. Like the survival mechanism is, and they they say fawning was first described with like abuse victims or people with Stockholm syndrome, that you just learn how to cope because the level of stress is so high. And in horses, we call them um, perfectly trained, which I, I just, it just makes me crazy. I've always called them overtrained, not quite sure how to describe a horse that's anticipating the next dressage move just to stay out of trouble, as well as the horses that are like, do your worst, kick, 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 I'll barely move. And it can be either one of those extremes where some horses are anxiously sort of throwing the next maneuver and the next maneuver at you. And other horses are just completely shut down going, oh, do what you will. Just let me know when the time is over. Right. And that's what you're calling the the dorsal vagal part of the nervous system, which I've always considered freezing and fawning a whole nother layer of extreme defensiveness in horses. Right. You've got to wonder, though, with the fawning, because they are so overactive, is part of that maybe a little bit of sympathetic in there, right? To be that sort of anxious and, you know, yes. their blood pressure up. That's probably yes. a combination of the two a little bit. Whereas yes. I think that the ones that are just like apathetic are like truly just dorsal vagal. There's no mm. combination in there. Got you know? it. Um, so I would wonder if those ones that are the hyperactive anxiety ones might be easier to get back you know, because they are at least expressing something where you could maybe move them through. I don't know. That's a good question. It's interesting. Yeah. The the push button horse is what I'm talking about. And it's like, it's actually, they're very hard to retrain because they're always throwing themselves into sort of one dysfunctional, poorly organized movement after another, just trying to sort of anticipate what the rider wants right I can see that yeah that does make it really hard <laughs> yeah it, it's everything has to go like you have to go right back to square one and just absolutely stop movement and mm -hmm. their first response then is freezing it's like once you try to slow that down they mm -hmm. they'll tend to freeze a lot that's why I sort of lump those two together as extreme extreme levels of fear and defensiveness it makes sense. Makes sense a lot. Oh, good. So from um, an osteopathic standpoint, a lot of times what I find is that there are physical constraints to movement that can affect the nervous system, right? So one of the most common things that we find is um, restrictions at the level of the pole. So like around the, the temporal mandibular point, joint, around the jaw, or around that first or second vertebrae. And um, when you look at it, when we try to connect polyvagal theory with anatomy, that's where the vagus nerve comes out mm. and it exits the skull, like right under, you know, inside the TMJ joint and comes out and comes down here. And I think a lot of times um, just getting the blood flow back to the brain and opening up the nerve, the holes that the nerves come out of from the skull start to change the input of the vagus nerve. And you can find like huge behavior changes you know, so I almost think of that as um, maybe they're hyped up because this is always kind of pinched and, you know, hypersensitive and they're just kind of amped up because of it. 
So what it, what is the vagus nerve and where does it run through the horse's body? Sure. Um, you know, back to basics, right? Yeah. So the yeah. vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body. It's called the vagus, like vagabond, because it's called the wanderer. Um, it goes from, it exits the skull at the base of the skull. It's something called the jugular foramen. Um, and it comes out and it comes down around the jugular grooves here. Um, the neck. And, um, and actually, I think it's on each side of the esophagus. Okay. It comes down and then it, it, um, switches from left to right to dorsal ventral when it enters the chest and then it comes through the chest and then it goes to the diaphragm and innervates all the organs. So the thing to know about it is that anything that is an organ in your body is pretty much going to be innervated by the vagus nerve. So that's your whole GI tract, your heart, your lungs, um, you know, a lot of the glands in the body, mm -hmm. um, thyroid, um, thymus, which is your immune system, kidneys, reproductive organs, you know, you name it. Um, so, and that's going to control your blood pressure. It's going to control a lot of the receptors that tell us whether or not your pH is balanced, you know, all these things are going to be regulated by it. Um, and it feeds back and shares um, space in the brainstem with the facial nerve and the trigeminal nerve and the glossopharyngeal nerve, which are three other um, cranial nerves um, that have to do with um, speaking um, and making noise and swallowing um, and also have to do with uh, glands and sensitivity of the head and the face. So um, there are some studies where they're sort of trying to integrate that, like um, Dr. Porges is doing a whole lot with trying to do vibrations of the little inner ear bones in the, mm -hmm. the, um, with using hearing because that then affects the same nucleus as the um, vagus nerve. So he's using music and different sorts of sounds to help reset the nervous system. Interesting. For people or for horses? Yeah. For, for people. I'm, I, we haven't quite figured out. I asked him about doing it for horses, and it's kind of hard because you're supposed to have the music so that you have to kind of, you have to strain a little to hear it. Like, mm. You can't blast it. It right. has to be like, you know, and it's supposed to be something that you listen to the music while doing something that has to do with connection. So I think if we were going to use it for horses, it would be like, put it on like a little, you know, like a little pocket speaker or something, and then wear it and groom your horse. Ah, like something like that. And the horse would get reset at the same time, um, which I'd like to, I've kind of toyed with, um, but I'm sure you find this too, that unfortunately, most of us have horses that have problems that are similar to ourselves you know, in some ways. And so I was just talking about that with Deb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. A lot of times it would be really good to reset ourselves as well as the horses. Right. Yes. Um, absolutely. So I've thought about doing that as a way to kind of, as a veterinarian, I'm not, I can't do human stuff, but at least I could kind of help the rider a little bit by doing something like that. Absolutely. No. And that's, it, it's so dynamic because horses are constantly communicating non-verbally. So, our energy generated by our thoughts, our emotions, our body use, all of that's just broadcasted to the horse all the time. And Deb and I were just talking about that, how it's not uncommon for the horse and the rider to both have anxiety or a lot of tension or, you know, that their, their issues that they need to work through are quite similar. And it makes me wonder if it's not a way that horses sort of attempt to bond is matching that energy. And so changing that loop is really up to the human. I think it's so true. Like, you know, um, I think a lot about how do we make horses matter in the next, you know, thousand years or a hundred years? How do we, what is the value of horses now that we have cars? Yeah. And I think that that's really what their value is, is that there's so much to the connection between people and horses. And there's so much we can learn from each other um, because they are such amazing energy readers and they're so in touch with the people around them that they kind of, they tell on us, right? If, if you're not present, if you're not taking care of yourself, they're telling you. Yes. Whether you want to hear it or not, they're telling you. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of what we label as behavioral problems, I see firsthand is the horse sort of trying to train the owner. 
Like you need to pay attention to this or we're both going to get killed, right? right? Or you need to change this and I'm going to just keep giving you this private lesson until you get it. And it's out of like this generosity that horses have. You know, if you're, you're either in the horse's mind, a predator or you're in the herd, there's like nothing in between. So if you're in the herd, Sometimes, very often, I'll watch horses try to train their owners with better survival skills. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to get, you know, we're all going to get killed if you don't get this. Right. You know, just like I watched my older horse train my young horse out in the pasture. It was like, these are the lessons you need to need to know so that we can all survive as a group. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And that ability to connect like i've even been looking more and more into the heart math institute research on how horses affect humans even the heart rate of humans just by being mm-hmm. present with them and it's that thing that none of us can put our finger on that there's something about horses that we we just want to be around or we feel better when we're around them or it's a genetic mutation we have that makes us revolve our lives around horses (laughs) I don't know what it is but yeah it's that yeah there's something amazing about that connection when you can um you can feel it like you guys when you have that energy kind of connection with the horse where all is right with the world yeah and it's very hard to describe until you experience it yourself and then (laughs) you need to be around horses and I, I I think the same thing you do. I'm really happy to hear you say that you really worry about the relevance of horses in our lives going forward. And it's something I worry about as well, because if people aren't having this amazing experience that's possible with horses, then why own them? Why go to the trouble of maintaining them and having them as part of your life? Because they become a huge part of your life when you own a horse. Yep. Well, and I do think like, you know, when I first started veterinary medicine, I thought, okay, I want to be the, I want to be the, you know, famous vet that goes out and works on everybody, you know, I'm going to work on Olympic horses. And what I realized is that that is not where I belong because what I really like to do is work on the horses that are going to stay with their owners forever. You know, me like, too. Oh, like me too. Connection. And I yes. think that that's where the, like, like that's where polyvagal comes in, right? Because you're really working on this long-term connection and health and you want everybody to be there for each other as long as possible. And that's a very different relationship than the person that is out there to, you know, get their gold medal this year. Right. And they don't care you know, they kind of care, but they don't really care about the horse because they're so busy thinking about the goal. Right. Just about how do we make it to this goal? You know, let's do injections. Let's do that. Let's do shockwave. Let's do, you know, and it's just bandaid upon bandaid upon bandaid. And, you know, every time they put the saddle on, the horse is putting his ears back. And like you were saying, the horse is trying to give them the lesson. Yes. And they're ignoring it because they're so busy focusing on the goal. Or they dismiss it as some, you know, negative personality trait of the horse. And I I go, no, that is their communication. Right. They're trying to tell you something's not working. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think that that's kind of when we talk about that polyvagal theory, if they're not getting heard, if, you know, the horses are trying to do their job and they're just getting pushed and pushed and pushed, I think that's another reason to go into shutdown, right? It's that overwhelmed they just can't deal anymore so those are unhealthy horses so they're more likely to have more medical problems because they're 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 not able to express things they don't feel safe they don't feel heard you know that's kind of what what that ventral vagal the healthy parasympathetic is about is feeling safe feeling comfortable being able to sleep well being able to you know, eat when they want, you know, express themselves and feel like something will happen. You know, if they don't have that, they keep on this road towards more sympathetic and more of that unhealthy, um, the dorsal vagal system. So I think it's just looking at that. So by ventral vagal, which is part of the parasympathetic system, Mm -hmm. ventral, obviously the underside of the horse, that's that Mm -hmm. segment of the vagus nerve that runs Mm -hmm. under the spine where, the dorsal vagal 
also the dorsal side of the body. So along the back or up higher near the spine or above the spine, So or does it's it? more, it, it, I mean, they don't like innervate. One doesn't innervate the bottom and one innervates the top. So they actually come down on the neck as Mm -hmm. left and right. Okay. And then the left one becomes ventral and the right one becomes dorsal. So the left side in general tends to innervate more of the heart and lungs and the beginning of the stomach. And the right side tends to innervate more of the abdominal viscera and the reproductive organs and the kidney. Okay. So when we look at it anatomically, that's kind of how it breaks out. Um, you know, so I think that that's probably, you know, pretty true to form, right? So when you're running, you need your heart and lungs more. And when you're um, kind of in that dorsal vagal, you're just sort of pooling everything into the viscera, that's GI and that kind of part. So I think there's the bad, it's not like, it's not like only one, you know, does Right, right, you know, there's a balance, right. but that's sort of the anatomy of it. And so that's interesting because the dorsal vagal is going to maybe be affected more directly by the rider, the rider balance, the saddle, um, and influence like that might have a more direct influence because of the impact we put when we ride a horse, even a driving harness. as the saddle and some of the weights carried there between the neck and the saddle. So the vagus nerve, again, it's on the esophagus. And so the esophagus is going to come through the thoracic inlet, and then it kind of rides above the heart um, and goes through like in between the lungs and, and above the heart and comes through and then right about the level of where the stirrup bar is on the saddle. Mm -hmm. And that's where it takes a 90 degree turn and it goes from this direction to this direction. And the diaphragm is right here. There's like a little sphincter. Oh, so, through. so right at the stirrup bar, it's going this way into the stomach through a sphincter. So I think that we have a profound effect on the vagus nerve when we ride because we're sitting right on that area. where it's turning. So where it's going from going. horizontal to vertically downward. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And so, you know, anytime, you know, from an osteopathic standpoint, anytime anything has a turn, that's where it gets stuck. Right. You know, that's where we uh, function. Yes. So I think that that's a, a huge area for dysfunction, you know, with um, the horses. So maybe that's part of why we so, see so many gastric ulcers, you know, um, as well, because it's right there, right where everything's kind of coming together. Um, I feel like a lot of horses have problems with um, moving correctly and flexing through their spine and using their hind end correctly. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Um, but the diaphragm is um, interwoven with the psoas muscle. So um, right at the back, about at the thoracolumbar junction, they kind of interweave like this. And the psoas muscle is really important for allowing proper motion of the hind end. Mm -hmm. So if that's not working right, And there's something going on with the diaphragm at the front end, you know, because of the start bar and the way the rider is riding, then that can have a profound effect on the back end too. Absolutely. And is it related to like, uh, my understanding is maybe between like T9 and T14 to 16 is a pretty mobile area of the upper thoracic spine, or the I guess that's the mid thoracic spine to the end. And that that's where we're going to get the greatest mobility for, say, lateral bending or flexion and extension. Is that going to have an impact so that the use of the spine is having an impact also on the vagal nerve? Absolutely. Well, yes. Yeah. So um, nine through 14. So that those segments of the spine innervate the stomach and the small intestine and the spleen. I'm trying to think what else. Um, the diaphragm has its own innervation. Um, so it's more comes from the phrenic nerve. So that's more up in the neck. Um, but you have all those organs underneath um, that could be affected with, um, you know, a problem in that area. Um, I have a, a scratch in my throat. So I'm going to take a sip of coffee. That's okay. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that was just my understanding is that if we're talking about the functions of, say, rotation, lateral bending, and even flexion and extension, that that segment of the spine has quite a bit of mobility in, in all of those directions. I think it would be more that the ribs are less attached 
right? Because they're not attaching as much to the sternum. They're more of those floating ribs. So they have more of an ability to move. Ah. So it's probably because of that, that it has more motion, right? Because the ones in front of that on those ribs are attached solidly to the sternum. So there's very little rotation because you have like a, a full rib cage, right? And then these other ones, you have a lot more motion in them because they're, they're just kind of loosely um, attached with just a cartilaginous connection. So I would think that would be it more than anything else. Interesting. The other thing about that area, there's a research paper I read. Uh, I think the paper was titled um, Umwelt by a lady up in um, University of Michigan, I think, but talking about the horse's five senses. And mm -hmm. that particular area that you're describing, especially around where the stirrup bar would be down to the stirrup, on horses, their skin sensitivity in that area measured higher than the human fingertip. Like it's an incredibly sensitive, skin sensitive part of their body. Hmm. I and I, something we've created over time, you know, like if horses that were more sensitive were bred more because they were more able to be to listen or to do what the rider asked. And then you gotta wonder if that's I always look at it like I find it interesting that that's the most skin sensitive part of their body because when they move as a herd, they're not looking at each other. They're right. feeling each other. And to me, it looked more evolutionary in that if that's one of the barrel is a more sensitive area of the body, that that since that kinesthetic sensitivity is part of them feeling the energy field of the other horses around them, which allows the whole herd to move like one unit without, yeah, that makes sense. without mm -hmm. a visual context, you know, right. that they can really, yeah. And so their sensitivity level is almost hard to imagine. And when you look at spurs or kicking or harshness with the whip, it just makes me cringe. Like somebody's you know, pinching our fingertips or, you know, it's, if you go, if that's a level of, of sensitivity there, no wonder they shut down. Like that would just become absolutely overwhelming to the body at a certain point. Yep. That makes a lot of sense that because it is already hypersensitive, that multiple stimulation would definitely shut them down, right? Because you're going right to the spot that's the most sensitive and then you're like overstimulating it. Yeah. So the rider who drives with the seat or moves around all over the place or, you know, the I think what you're talking about with the polyvagal um, or what you're calling, sorry, the, the dorsal vagal, like as in a state where the horse is freezing and shutting down and kind of giving up, mm -hmm. that that is their coping strategy for almost too much information or too much instability in that area of their body. Yep. I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. It's definitely, um, it's not a bad thing. It's a natural response and it's there to help them cope. Right. So right. we don't need to think of it as something that they're doing that's bad. It's something that they're doing because that's the way that the body helps them to deal with overwhelming stress, you know, but it's not the healthiest use of the body. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not yeah. unnatural and it's there to protect them, but it's also not ideal or them really blossoming as Absolutely. an individual. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's there for a reason. So we need to understand it and then we need to find different ways to, to work with the horse so that we're not taking them to that state. Right. You know, like, um, you know, that traditional sort of, um, gosh, I hate this tickle. I'm sorry. Hold on. That's all right. Take a sip. We're good. And it's interesting that, you know, I ended up looking well outside of the horse world for information about bodies because there wasn't a ton of research mechanically with horses. There's, you know, some really key studies that look at functional anatomy, but from a training perspective, I was like, okay, I can understand that for the health, but how do I keep through training? How do I support my horse's health and well-being? Right. Yeah, it's hard to find. You're right. And I, I had to look outside of the horse industry and then get the find the support of the actual research on horses. But 
a lot of it came from studies on human athletes or human psychology or sports medicine, that kind of thing. I think we're kind of, um, we're, you and I are both looking at things in a way that is not necessarily mainstream. And when you are trying to look for answers, sometimes the best place to go is outside of your own you know, little wheelhouse when you aren't looking for something mainstream because you do, you start translating things from other species or other um, modalities and, and then you can just um, bring them in and, and they just make so much sense. It does make sense. And it's like you can kind of even trace it back to some of the classical training masters. But at the time, I mean, we're talking 16, 17, 1800s that some of these training books were written. And while these guys are brilliant, it, the translation of the information isn't necessarily accurate. Right. Yep. I know. I had but a, we stick I, to it. We stick right. to it like we're going to change. Right. I, yeah. I had an eye-opening experience um, about a month and a half ago, two, two months ago. And I was trying to make some videos of my own horses to use for a dentistry lecture that I was giving. And so we were trying to make the horses put their heads in different positions and trying different things to get them to move in different ways, just to, because the lecture was on, you know, how does head position and jaw position change movement? And I don't know why it's taken me 45 years to figure this out because I should have known this a long, long time ago, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, you know, but I'm looking at the horses move and all of my horses um, tend to move in a, a very balanced way, but their head and their withers and their back are all in a line, you know? Yeah. So the top of the head and the top of the withers and the top of the, the buttocks are all equal. And that's how they move. You know, they're balanced, they're 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 in self-carriage, they're carrying themselves, they're not asymmetrical, but that's how they move. And um we one of the things that we did is we just took a nose band and tightened it. So nothing else changed. Riders mm -hmm. riding exactly the same, hands are in the same place. We were riding bareback, so they didn't have a saddle, you know, just put on a nose band. And as soon as we did that, all three of the horses started moving with their head you know, about 30 degrees up yeah. and their um, front end was much shorter, you know, and they, they didn't look unsound, but they were certainly not comfortable in the way they were moving. And I just had this moment of like, oh my God, this is how people don't even realize that their horses are already in this sort of sympathetic state with their heads right. up all the time because they come to them that way, right? Like the first time you try the horse, their heads up and they have a noseband on, and they're already moving that way. So you think that's how they're supposed to move, and everybody keeps riding them that way. And I, I know, that's that you're describing, like, the mission statement behind all of my training is after working with one of my mentors, who was also an osteopath, looking at balance and posture. I mm -hmm. go, you know, so much of how the horse moves is attributed to confirmation. And I go, right. but confirmation is like, okay, you can't change the size, the density, the shape of the bones, but you can change how those bones interrelate with each other, which alters the posture and the function Absolutely. of the body. Mm -hmm. And so changing posture, like that's where people look at me like I have two heads. I'm like, I don't care how slow or fast the horse moves if we're able to get from that posture you're describing with just putting a noseband on back to what you're describing is what I call the posture of basic balance. It's just that long and level use of the body, which right. means the axial skeleton is at least stabilized, that the muscles can work in length rather than that shortening contraction with you know, all the force on the front end instead of being controlled through the back and hindquarters. Well, and I think you can take that back to polyvagal theory. And I think that we can say that the horses that are level are in that ventral vagal healthy parasympathetic state. And the horses that are up are in sympathetic. Yes. You know, and I think that the shutdown horses are kind of different because they're just not doing anything anymore. Um, you know, but I think anytime that you look at a horse and they're going around with their head up in the air, you should be thinking this horse is 
using its sympathetic nervous system and not its parasympathetic. So even if it doesn't appear stressed, it's not healthy and it's not going to heal itself and it's going to be prone to injury. Right. Right. So that's a way of looking at it. That's like no judgment. We're not saying that anybody is doing anything wrong, you know, that they're hurting their horse. We're just saying, here's just a state, you know, you have to look at this and think my horse is going to be at risk. Well, and it's shifting working with riders in a totally new way. And I love that it's coming from, from you as well as a vet, because as a trainer, I don't have the doctor credentials. I have to sort of, you know, prove it through the work. But we have the ability to encourage movement in one state or another. That has zero to do with what our horse is doing. Mm -hmm. But most people are looking at training like, oh, you know, on the lunge line, I need my horse to maintain gait and maintain direction as my first order of business not looking at whether that posture is long and level or long and low or high headed with short muscles and a drop back. And it's like, no, the, the posture and the nervous system that's sort of dominating the movement is mm-hmm. far more important than whether our horse maintains the trot or maintains the canter or, you know, goes over this jump or walks through that ditch or puddle. It's like, we're always looking at training as what can we get our horse to do? I go, you can get a horse to do anything. The difference in their health and well-being is how they do what they're doing, not what they're doing. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I feel like that's maybe where um, we have, as a society have gotten away from, um, seeing it, you know, understanding it and identifying it, you know, we don't even know what we're looking for. Right. Um, you know, if you look at pictures of horses online, you cannot, I know the head up. Yeah. (laughs) Right. No, I, I have actually people who are training to be judges, people who are upper level riders, new riders, people who just bought a, you know, six figure horse and they're going, well, show me some pictures of a horse moving in balance. So I know what it looks like. And they'll bring a stack of magazines or, you know, all the photos they saved online. And I'm like, I, it's very hard to find in the competitive world today. And so Mm -hmm. that's, I think what's perpetuating this bad movement is all the horses are moving the same way. Right. Well, and this isn't something that's taught in veterinary school. It's not taught to trainers, right? So when, you know, you're, you know, very well-respected, well-trained, good veterinarian comes out and does a pre-purchase or lameness exam, you know, they're not looking for it. Right. They don't, they, they don't know what polyvagal theory is necessarily. And they're not looking for how does the body move in balance and they're not looking at posture they're looking for pathology. Right. So exactly. Their job is to find what's wrong, you know, and they're just looking for other sources of pain, but they're not necessarily looking at it as a, how do we keep this body healthy as long as possible? You right. know, and how do we look at it preventatively five steps before it becomes an issue? You know, because exactly. they're, they're very trained to look at where is the injury um, and how do I fix that? Like, where is the symptom and how do I alleviate the symptom? you know, versus looking for the source. Right. Um, And I think that that's maybe part of it is that there just aren't a lot of people out there talking about it, you know. And And there is a place for that. My sister's an equine vet and she stays busy as can be dealing with pathology, pain issues and abnormal movement. And she looks at what I do on the preventative side and just goes, you know, wish we had more of it. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, somebody has to be fixing all the problems, right? And 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 we're get, we've gotten really good at fixing the problems, but um, maybe we need to take a step back sometimes and think about how do we look at this so that it doesn't happen. You know, do you need to be doing all of this at four or five? You know, are they strong enough? Um, there's a whole discussion nowadays about. Um, cervical problems, ECBM, so cervical vertebral malformations, as well as arthritis in the lower neck. And, um, you know, if we look at that from a, we add in the polyvagal part of it, there's a really important um, cranial nerve nuclei that sits right at the thoracic inlet, innervates all the blood flow to the brain. 
right? So a problem here is certainly going to affect a lot of hormones, a lot of problems in the head as well. Um, so if we have problems with instability in the base of the neck, it's going to affect a lot of things. And um, I think that we have a lot of horses that aren't done growing until they're seven or eight. Their growth plates and their cervical vertebrae and all their vertebrae are the last thing to fuse. Right. And they're going to be changed by how they're moving. Right. So if they're moving in that high headed state and they aren't strong enough to hold their back together because they haven't developed the top line, mm -hmm. they're going to create a lot of problems in that lower neck, which has been going to create a lot of problems for the parasympathetic nervous system and for the sympathetic nervous system and all kinds of other things that we haven't even really, you know, thought about when yeah. we're looking at how they were moving. You know, we just haven't put all the pieces together yet. And is it for all breeds of horses that I'm, my understanding was it's roughly seven years old when the skeleton is fully mature and the growth plates along the top line are the last to sort of stabilize. I think and like we start years. when the yeah. knees close at, you know, between two and three, we're like, oh, they're good to go because their knees are closed. It's like, yeah. yeah, I think it's seven or eight. And I think that um, we also need to take into account that horses that are hypermobile, um, they take much longer to become strong enough to hold anything. And so that includes most warm bloods, that includes um, most gated horses. And, you know, all gated horses, right? Like anything that, <laughs> anything that has a, you know, a really flashy, you know, flipping, you know, high motion gait is a hypermobile horse. And those mm -hmm. horses take much, much longer to get strong enough to hold the base of their neck and be able to carry themselves well. And I just don't think we're paying attention to it as a, as that sort of standpoint of, okay, slow down, you know, like they're doing it with ballet, you know, um, my daughter does ballet and she's hypermobile and, you know, they just keep telling her, you're not strong enough yet to do point. You're not strong uh, enough. You're too yeah. hypermobile. It's going to take you twice as long as everyone else. Um, because she can go both directions with her joints instead of just one. Right. So she has twice as many muscles. She has to get strong enough and stable to hold things. Right. You know, she just can't depend on the ligament to kind of hold her body together. And I think that's true for these big, um, rangy, you know, I mean, even the, the Spanish horses they're breeding now that are like 17 hands, mm -hmm. you know, they're not meant to be that big and they are very hypermobile and it's really hard on them. You know, they're just not strong enough to do what we're asking them to do at young ages. Well, and I think too, from groundwork, even at a young age, people are, a lot of training starts with restriction of the neck thinking that that's going to somehow, you know, or using some technique or tool to quote unquote, engage the hind legs by pushing them too far under the center of the body, you know, which is stressing out the hip, the stifle, the hock, everything. But especially with a hypermobile horse, it's like restricting the neck and trying to artificially engage the hindquarters. It just makes things 10 times worse. Right. They just need to like have that nice, like we're talking about, they need that nice, healthy head withers back and level to develop first. And that's the parasympathetic state. That's the learning frame of mind that gives you everything. It gives you health. It gives you wellness. It gives you muscling. You know, it's going to make them healthier in the long run. They're going to have less inflammation in their body. And then there's, they're going to learn better. They're going to focus better. You know, it just kind of ties it all together when you think about it that way. Absolutely. And that's the exact posture I call basic balance in my work. And if you don't have basic balance from basic balance to high balance is only a matter of degrees of spinal flexion and maybe increasing correct lateral bending of the of the spine that takes all of that power and strength higher for more advanced movement, more athletic movement. But without mm -hmm. basic balance, I go, you can't get to the high balance. Either the horse is going to fake it and come up with some complicated compensation pattern, yep. or the horse is going to get stressed out and start having behavioral issues or health issues. Mm -hmm. And you can't artificially create that frame. I go, if you don't have basic balance to start with, you can't get to the higher degrees of balance. Yep. 
Well, and I think it's it's just so simple when you think about it as like this is this is where they need to be. This is where they balance. This is where they're strong. This is where they're healthy. This is where they they can you know stay less stressed. This is where they can connect. You know, like no matter what you put there, it's the right place to start. And then once they have that and they're strong there, then you can absolutely ask for other things. But yeah. It's and it's a big key. paradigm shift in training to look at training for posture rather than training for obedience or doing tasks or performing a show. It's mm -hmm. like it's a totally different way to look at training, but I think it's much more important. And, yeah. and I have to say, it's, you know, one of the things that keeps motivating me is what we get back from horses. I go, if horses feel safe and mechanically comfortable, you just don't have the training issues. You have a horse that greets you at the gate and nickers at you and wants to work and wants to do things with you that it enjoys the partnership. So I go, I think right. we, you know, it takes... <clears throat> a big shift if we're already trained as riders and horse owners we have to make this massive paradigm shift into looking at it differently but then on the other side of that it's like oh, I just I get blue ribbons in my own private arena every day right. you know things that my horse offers me that I couldn't mm -hmm. have trained that horse to do it just spontaneously is coming from the horse and that to me is the whole magic. I go, that's, I think, what would help more people become interested in horses is if they could have that experience. But you have to give, agree. you have to give the horse what they need to get it back. Yeah. You, you know, well, you can Yeah. Well, and I think that's like part of kind of what we try to do here with um, our whole system when we can get people to do the collaborative is, you know, we try to kind of build that whole thing in, right? you know, the body work and the nutrition and the postural training and the energy work and the saddle fitting and the proper balance in the feet. And, you know, you make everything work, you get that posture right and get them developing right, give them the right nutrients to build that top line and be strong. We reset the nervous system, you know, we make them comfortable and like everything's working. And so then you have to just get that person that's connecting with them on board. Mm -hmm. You know, and then once you get those two together, then they're just like you said, it's magic. It's, it's it is magic. Part. And it's like you can you just see the horses like it's like the fountain of youth. They just look yeah. more beautiful. They look they younger. Mm -hmm. Their life force comes back. It's really rewarding. Yeah. And I go, you know, when people label stuff as behavior, bad behavior, it just makes my skin crawl. I go either your horse doesn't feel comfortable, which is a whole thing we all have to learn about as horse owners, or your horse doesn't feel safe. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I go, if your horse doesn't feel safe now, like with what we're talking about, if they go dorsal vagal, now you have a whole like compounding set of problems. Right. On, t on top of what might have started as just fight and flight, the horse is fearful or defensive, depending on how we handle it. We can send them into the deeper dorsal vagal state, and then you've got to kind of make your way back out of that. And you're going to have health issues on top of it. I would think like that dorsal vagal state is probably where we start to see like the EPM and the chronic Lyme and, you know, the ones that have chronic ulcers that aren't responding, you know, or they have laminitis, you know, that, you know, you just can't seem to get it under control. I think that that's probably that dorsal vagal where things just aren't, you, can, you just can't get to the bottom of it. Right. You know? Um, and so, yeah the more we can do to help them to get back to that healthy state of mind and the healthy state of nervous system, which includes the training, right? It includes connecting yeah. with their owner. It includes like all of those things we talked about, getting them with their posture, right? Helping them with their feet. So their posture goes from the bottom to the top, you know, yes. making sure that we're listening to them if they don't like their tack, you know, all of those things, the, the more that we can put together so that both the horse and the rider are healthy and happy, um, the better they'll do and the longer they'll stay without any problems. 
Yeah. I, if we don't feel safe and comfortable, we're not having a good time. And the same is true for our horse. It, it's just sort of that in a nutshell. Yep. But I love that you described your horse's balance, like spot on with the actual illustrations I have in my little workbooks that show basic balance. I, <laughs> I go, need your workbooks. <laughs> it's such a, it is, it's just such a healthy use of the body and the mind. And then we don't have, like it sort of surprised me when I first started this work. I don't have to address every single issue. Mm -hmm. I go, if I look at restoring, you know, a healthy use of the nervous system and a comfortable use of the body, all of those things that my horse could never do before or was afraid of, it like, it all just changes. Mm -hmm. I never address it directly. It just changes for the better. Yeah. It's so cool. It's so cool. <laughs> I know. Now, I have loved talking to you about this. And so let me just repeat, make sure I'm clear. We have basically the vagus nerve is the largest nerve in the body. And it's the wanderer, which is, right? So polyvagal is sort of what is the newer term referring to almost a third part of the nervous system. Of the autonomic nervous system. So of the audit. Yeah. You know, so there's still the sensory and the muscle part. We kind of separate those out to different sections. But this okay. is just the autonomic, which is all of the things that you never think about that balance right. your body. That just mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. So then ventral vagal is the term more related to the parasympathetic state and dorsal vagal, healthy one. Healthy one. Mm -hmm. And the dorsal vagal is more the part of like the fight and flight sympathetic, but much deeper as its own thing. It's basically a shutdown mode. It, it, where it, it, I think what you're saying is like when um, a prey animal is attacked, once they're sort of captured, they go into that polyvagal state or that dorsal vagal state where they're no longer afraid. They've let go. They're ready to die. That's, that's, yeah, then that's the extreme version of it. And I think, right. um, and then it is part of this, it's the parasympathetic system kicking back in versus mm -hmm. the sympathetic. So it's, it's definitely part of the parasympathetic system. Um, but yeah, to an extreme, it's exactly that. It's the, okay, fine, I'm going to be eaten. I might as well just check out. Right. You know? um, but I think we see phases of that that are, um, that we call shutdown because that's the best way to think about it. You know, they're right. just, sort of there, but not there. Um, right. Coping. Mm -hmm. No. And I think if anybody listening to this podcast goes out and looks at their good horse or their schoolmaster, maybe mm -hmm. with some fresh eyes and, and, and take a look and see, is my horse really shut down? And that's why my horse is quiet. Or is this horse, I actually had some clients who took an old school horse that had broken down and he was a kid's horse, you know, and as that horse started to heal, that's exactly what happened as he started blowing up, he started bucking, he started acting out, he started to have more energy. And that was part of the waking up phase, like restoring yep. health. That has to be an expected part of it coming out of that dorsal vagal state, you know, state is yeah, you don't, well, I think that's it isn't smooth and perfect. When you get them, they really do that. Yeah, you just yeah. have to be ready for it. <laughs> yeah. It's a stage that they work through and they come out the other side. But a lot of people, including my clients, said, you know, what have we done wrong? Suddenly my horse is blowing up and I go, because you're getting very effective changes in the right direction. And it's mm -hmm. a process. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. All right. So, Anne-Marie, thank you so much for, for joining me for this. This hour flew by. It's so yeah. interesting. And I would love to have you back. I'm not sure what topic. We'll have to talk about that. But um, for anybody listening, again, it's Dr. Anne-Marie Hancock, veterinary DVM and equine osteopath from True North Equine in Marshall, Virginia. And I will put your contact details in the show notes and underneath the video so people can contact you, especially if they, I know a lot of your clients have these horses that they love, they put a boatload of money into and things are just going sideways. And you and yeah. your collective have done some amazing turnarounds. 
that's kind of what we do is we turn around the ones that nobody else can figure out because usually if it's not pathology, it's, it's in the body. So that's where, um, what we do, um, really helps. So, um, and we do, um, some televet consults. So if somebody's out of area and they want to call in and have a consult with us, we'd be happy to do that. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Good to know. So thank you for joining me. And I'll wrap it up. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of the Horse Geeks podcast. And we will see you next time.